Hello and welcome to the October edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have an Upper Airways theme edition for you, with Fabrice Rossignol discussing cervical nerve transplantation and Charlotte McGivney talking about serial evaluation of overground endoscopies. Fabrice Rossignol is a specialist equine surgeon at the Clinique de Grabois in France near Paris. He's kindly joined us to talk about the paper titled Modified First or Second Cervical Nerve Transplantation Technique for the Treatment of Recurrent Laryngeal Neuropathy in Horses. Fabrice, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your new paper on cervical nerve transplantation for the treatment of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy. I appreciate you've got a busy time at Beaver Congress, so I appreciate you fitting us in. Um, To start with, could you briefly tell us about current techniques used to treat horses with RLN, including the differences between... Sorry, the nerve muscle pedicle technique and the nerve transplantation. Sure. Thank you so much for your invitation. It's a real pleasure for me to talk to you. So to answer your question, your first question, possible techniques to treat RLN include the ventriculocardectomy or ventriculectomy, the update procedure. And the procedure is now performed using a transotoscopic laser. Then the laryngoplasty or tieback with the goal of permanently uh, abducting the left idoneate cartilage to prevent its collapse within the laryngeal lumen. The procedure is now performed on the standing horse. This technique is usually performed in combination with the previous uh, ventriculocardectomy. And then a more physiologically viable treatment for RLN is the renovation of the CAD with transplantation of the nerve innervating the homoeoidus muscle uh, this nerve is formed by the first and second cervical nerve. The nerve muscle pedicle technique was developed 20 years ago, such a long time ago, and consists in grafting multiple pieces of homoeoidus muscles with their nerve branch into the CAD muscle. This is a lot of dissections and it's a long procedure. The new direct nerve transplantation is performed by tunneling C1, C2 nerve branches without muscle through the CAD muscle. This is a much more simple technique. Uh, it's important, whatever the technique used, that the homoeoidus branches of C1, C2 are only activated at exercise. This is an important point. Okay. So which technique do they use in humans with bilateral vocal fold paralysis? In human, this is a bit different. Uh, in human, bilateral vocal cord paralysis usually occur after iatrogenic damage of the recurrent nerve during a thyroidectomy, removing the thyroid gland, or after accidental trauma of the neck. The technique of direct transplantation was developed by a French surgeon, Professor Jean-Paul Marie in Rouen, um, the technique is a total motor selective renovation of the larynx. So it combines two steps. It combines a bilateral renovation of the CAD muscle using the phrenic nerve, emerging from the fifth cervical root. This is for the abduction part. And a branch of the hypoglossus nerve connected to the adductor branch of the recurrent nerve to renovate the CAL an adductor muscle. So it's a, a combination of abduction 
renovation and adduction renovation. This is very important in humans because um, they need to improve breathing, but also to protect the airway during swallowing and to allow speaking. Okay, so what advantage does the direct nerve transplantation have when you compare uh, with these other techniques? Direct nerve transplantation is a more physiological treatment of airlen. The abduction of the arytenoid cartilage is only stimulated at exercise, and the arytenoid remains in vertical positioning at rest, allowing closure of the remagrotides during swallowing. So this is an important point to, to prevent any problem we can see on tie back after tie back that is uh, dysphagia and coughing. Compared to the original technique of pedicle nerve grafts, tunneling the C1-C2 nerve branch to the C8 muscle is a straightforward procedure, and surgical time is shorter, around one hour. So this is similar to laryngoplasty regarding time. The use of the blunt nerve locatal tool allows a rapid identification of the donor nerve in the surrounding tissue and reduces the dissection time. The technique for tunneling the nerve is quick and allows a large area of the recipient muscle to be covered for potential renovation compared with the extensive and delicate dissection of the multiple small neuropedic muscular bundles required for the nerve muscle pedicle technique. The grafted nerve penetrates the medial belly of the CID, traverses two or three centimeters of the muscle and is suture at the exit point on the lateral muscle belly. This tunneling should decrease the tension on the nerve, and this may add stability of the nerve transplant. And another important point for us is also that the tunnel branch is also placed in a different location from the recurrent nerve that is preserved. This might have an interest in grade 3, laryngeal hemiplegia, as the CAD muscle can be innervated by the two nerves. So what were the particular aims of this study? The main of our study were to describe a modified C1-C2 transplantation technique in client-owned horses with naturally occurring laryngeal neuropathy, and then to evaluate the outcomes of renovation using a direct nerve needle stimulation of the first cervical nerve and exercising endoscopy before and after surgery. Okay, so could you tell us a little more about how you evaluated the subjects preoperatively? So preoperatively, all horses underwent a resting endoscopy to determine the laryngeal grade. If horses had a grade 4, they were subjected to electrical stimulation of the laryngeal nerve, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Preoperative exercising endoscopy was also performed either by overground endoscopy or high-speed treadmill examination in all horses. Then, all horses had a ultrasonography of the larynx in order first to rule out any dysplasia and then to assess the degree of amyotrophy of both CIL and part of the CID muscles. Okay. And then they had the surgical procedure. I know you've given us a, a little explanation, but could you summarize the whole procedure for us, please? Sure, sure. 
So the positioning of the approach is similar to laryngoplasty. The dissection plane is made ventral to the laryngofacial vein and dorsal to the homoeutus muscle. But different to the laryngoplasty, when the thin fascia over the cricopharyngeus muscle medial to the laryngofacial vein is reached, the dissection is stopped. Then the C1, C2 nerve branches are located and mapped using a nerve locator tool. The main branch is usually located over the caudal border of the cricoid cartilage. Several branches are gently dissected ventrally toward the insertion of the homoeutus muscle and dorsally where the nerve crosses the lateral aspect of the carotid artery. Three to four branches are selected, and the branch from the which, when stimulated, produces the strongest contraction is selected to be tunneled. The selected nerves are cut to their muscular insertion on the homoeutus muscle. Then the CAD is approached using a lateral approach between the cricopharyngeus and thyroid muscles or by a caudal approach. When using a lateral approach, a partial myotomy of the cricopharyngeus muscle is performed. Then, a 3-0 absorbable monofilament suture is passed through the tip of the nerve to be grafted and secured with a surgical seat tie knot. The nerve is then tunneled from medial to lateral within the CID using a blunted reverter needle. Some scarifications are made on the distal end of the nerve, and the nerve is retracted back to the CID and secured to the lateral belly of the muscle. Then any extra nerve branches are implanted directly in selected area around the first graft into the CID. The wound is closed in three layers. Okay, there's a lovely figure in your paper that helps um, us visualize the surgical procedure. So I urge the readers to go and, go and look at that diagram. So once the surgical procedure was finished, um, how did you then assess the horses post-operatively? The horses are evaluated at six months by direct nerve stimulation, resting and exercising endoscopy, and most of them are evaluated at one year. Okay, and when evaluating these horses, did you find that they responded positively to direct C1 nerve stimulation? And what did you find on your endoscopy examinations? Horses responded very well to this test. They were sedated and the very thin electrode was implanted using the ultrasonic guidance toward the alar foramen of the atlas. When the horse were Reinnervated, a clear, visible twitch with submaximal to maximal abduction of the left arytenoid was observed synchronous with the stimulation frequency. Okay, and what did you see on the endoscopic examinations? So, according to the stimulation, when the horse, if the horse is not reinnervated, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And if the horse is renovated, a, um, a submaximal abduction occurred of the left arytenoid cartilage in synchrony with the stimulation frequency. Okay, thank you. So what kind of responses did the owners and trainers find? The concept of physiological and more natural treatment of pharyngeal hemiplegy was very appreciated by the owner especially regarding the well-known complications after laryngoplasty, especially coughing and dysphagia. 
I must say that sport horses owners were probably the most enthusiastic regarding this new technique. So how you must have adapted this technique over the years. What kind of adaptations do you find most fruitful in this technique? Yes, yeah, sure. Since the paper was written, we have adapted the technique a bit. Hold horses are operating in standing position now under um, sedation and uh, local anesthesia with a similar protocol we use for the standing tieback. We also use a modified caudal approach to the CID that decreases the tension on the graft there. Okay, and what's your next step with this procedure and this research? The next step of the procedure would be to stimulate the grafted nerve during the recovery period with a laryngeal pacemaker in order to improve the rehabilitation and to shorten the recovery time. Fabrice, thank you very much for joining us um, to talk about this fascinating procedure. We really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. And if anybody wants to ask me any question, they don't edit it. It would be a real pleasure. Thank you. Charlotte McGivney is a specialist equine surgeon at Scott Mitchell Associates. This work forms part of her PhD, completed at the University of Dublin, in which she looked at the genomics of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy. This paper is titled Serial Evaluation of Resting and Exercising Overground Endoscopic Examination Results in Young Thoroughbreds with No Treatment Intervention. Charlotte, thanks very much for joining us to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. Um, I'd like to start off by asking if any variation with respect to assessing our upper respiratory tract disorders using resting endoscopy or overground endoscopy has already been highlighted in the literature. Well, thank you, Rhiannon, for inviting me to talk on this podcast. Um, in answer to your question, yes, it has. Um, Anderson, our, a number of years ago, evaluated 452 um, young thoroughbreds and standardbreds by resting endoscopy twice, 16 months apart, um, looking at laryngeal grade. And only 43 of these horses retained the same laryngeal grade over time. Um, 29% of those horses improved and 28% deteriorated by at least one grade in that time period. Um, Perkins also um, reported on a much shorter time frame in draft horses evaluated twice over 48 hours, um, again looking at laryngeal grade with only moderate agreement in grade with horses changing by up to three grades in this time period. Um, in looking at more at direction of change, Dixon um, evaluated uh, laryngeal grade over time and reported 15% of horses deteriorating in grade over a year. Um, and Davidson um, evaluated three horses um, by exercising endoscopy on two occasions and saw development of laryngeal neuropathy in two of those horses over time and a worsening grade in the other. Um, but to date, no published data has compared exercising endoscopy under the same exercise conditions without a surgical in intervention occurring between the examinations. Um, and of course, many of the upper respiratory tract disorders that we recognise now are only recognised at exercise. Um, so the variability of these conditions um, was a little unknown other than from the general feeling of people conducting exercising endoscopy. Um, Pora Kelly had looked um, at horses on three occasions um, 
as on the lunges yearlings and twice ridden and for his masters and that's yet to be published um but the horses exercised over different distances on each occasion so it's not quite so comparable okay so how has surgical intervention been implicated or discussed um, in the development of some of these disorders and probably the best publication looking at this um, was by Luton, who evaluated 35 horses by overground endoscopy um, on a very similar exercise um, regime pre and post laryngoplasty. Um, she found a significant 30% increase in the proportion of horses displaying um, medial deviation of the apiglottic folds postoperatively, um, and a horse which displayed dorsal displacement of the soft palate. Um, and some horses displaying venture medial luxation of the corniculate processes again post-surgery. Um, but she didn't discuss um, any improvement of conditions in addition to the arytenoid asymmetry in that paper. Um, she reported reduced airway diameter um, as being the contributing factor to the development of these additional upper respiratory tract conditions seen post-surgery, um, despite the fact that she reported that the post-operative airway was larger um, than it was preoperatively. Um, Compostella also evaluated 30 horses 15 months post laryngoplasty, um, where persistent abnormal respiratory noise at exercise had occurred despite surgery. Um, she found that 87% of these had multiple abnormalities post surgery, which were mainly palatal dysfunction, um, medial displacement of the areopagotic folds, and vocal fold collapse. Um, Again, surgery had an effect on the diagnosis of those horses, that, but mainly in the fact that horses that had undergone ventriculocordectomy, um, in addition to laryngoplasty, were less likely to show vocal fold collapse post-surgery, which is maybe obvious. Um, but she found no association between arytenoid abduction grade and the presence of other forms of dynamic airway collapse in that study, um, and concluded that in most cases the persistent noise exercise is unrelated to um, the laryngoplasty and was due to additional disorders. Um, and she felt that those horses would have benefited from being evaluated by exercising endoscopy before surgery. Um, a number of other studies have looked at, at horses in that way just post-surgery without a pre-surgical exercising endoscopy and found, um, so Barnett found a large number of horses developed or sort of displacement of a soft palate post-laryngoplasty. So what were the objectives of objectives of this study and what did you hypothesize? Um, so we wanted to compare the upper respiratory tract finding in horses that had been examined on at least two occasions by overground endoscopy um, over a comparable exercise um, regime um, and um, to also look at the change in those horses at rest and we hypothesized that the upper respiratory tract findings would differ between examinations even though no surgical intervention had occurred for all conditions. In, in addition, we wanted to look at the effect of time um, and whether that had any effect on the number of upper respiratory tract conditions that we saw or, or the number of changes in grade that we saw um, over, over that period. So what were your inclusion criteria and how many horses did you manage to recruit for the study? <laughs> of course, recruiting horses these studies is always very difficult. Yeah. Um, so all the horses utilised in the study were speed gene tested by the trainer and he only kept horses that he expected to be best suited to sprinting over short and middle distances, um, which helps describe um, why we used the sprint training of four and a half furlongs that we did. 
Um, so we included horses that had undergone overground endoscopy during that splint chain and over four and a half furlongs on at least two occasions on the same all-weather gallop. Um, horses had to have worn the same tack on each occasion. And jockeys were then questioned on how the horse had performed and if any problems had been encountered during the training session, in addition to GPS and heart rate recordings and plasma lactate levels taken pre and post-exercise. And um, to try and get some objective analysis of the workload undertaken and make sure it was similar um, on both occasions for these horses. Um, veterinary records for each horse were also obtained so that we were able to identify if horses had undergone surgery and horses were excluded if they had. Um, we also excluded horses then if there were any concerns that the horse hadn't performed an identical exercise out for any reason. For instance, if it had returned um, lame from exercise. Um, or GPS suggested it hadn't done anything like a comparable um, workout on that occasion to previously. Um, exercising upper respiratory tract abnormalities were not analysed if technical issues resulted in a non-diagnostic video at peak speed. So 78 horses met the inclusion criteria, with 72 of these having complete data for both rest and exercise. So how did you assess the horses? Um, well, statistical analysis was aimed at describing both population level changes and also changes occurring at the individual horse level. Um, so classically for these studies, the McNema's chi-squared is used to compare the proportion of horses affected by a disorder um, at each time point. And we also evaluated horses in this way initially and found no significant differences. Um, but we felt that this didn't really match what we were seeing. Um, so we had to think about why that might be the case. Um, and if you take the most extreme example of, for instance, 50% horses hypothetically being affected by a disorder on the first examination, and 100% of those horses then changing on the second examination, you would actually get a non-significant result on the McNeeman's chi-squared because 50% of the horses would still be affected, even though they were a different 50%. Um, so we felt we maybe were missing information because there were large changes in grade in both directions. Um, so we wanted to look a bit deeper into the individual horse level. Um, so first, we very simply con compared whether a horse did or didn't change grade for each disorder, and we evaluated those results using a Z-test. Um, and for all conditions, a significant number of horses did change grade on the second examination, with the exception of a retinoid asymmetry exercise. Um, but this crude test didn't provide any information about the clinical relevance of the grain changes or magnitude of the grade changes that occurred. Um, so, for example, a horse that had a grade one vocal fold collapse on the first exam and no vocal fold collapse on the second exam would have registered as a change in grade for this test. So that's unlikely to be very significant clinically. Um, so we want to present more information on that. Um, so we looked at the strength of correlation of the grades recorded for each of the two examinations using Spearman's row. And this allowed a measure of whether the differences in grade theme were subtle or marked. Um, we used ordered logistic regression to assess the effect of time elapsed between examinations on the changes in grade, um, but we didn't have enough power to um, look at that statistically in great detail, so we just present exploratory results. Um, and finally, we had a lot more than two evaluations for some horses, and we didn't want to lose that information or not share that. Um, so we used lattice plots to display all the observational information we had for each disorder over time, um, just to allow that to seen graphically. So your overground endoscopies are evaluated by a single observer. 
Could you just explain what kind of grading scheme you used and how the recordings were graded? Yes, so um, videos were all evaluated by a single observer for consistency um, for this paper, because although another observer may have graded the horses differently, um, we were most interested in whether the actual grade assigned changed um, between the exams, not what the grade was. Um, an inter-observer agreement, intra-observer agreement, sorry, um, when watching the same overground and video twice in blinded fashion had previously been shown to be good for excellence for this observer, which in a previous publication that we um, published in Equine Vet New Journal. Um, the horses were retrospectively identified for inclusion in the study and overground endoscopy videos were then collated and reviewed with the view of blinded source identity. Um, and the grading schemes we used were the commonly used grading schemes previously published in the literature. Um, so we used the Havermeyer grading scheme of the full seven grades for uh, um, arytenoid asymmetry at rest and then the Havermeyer grade scheme of the three grades um, for arytenoid symmetry at exercise. Um, for the majority other, of the other conditions, um, to look at mild, moderate or severe um, cases um, as previously published, um, pharyngeal or lymphoid hyperplasia was graded on the 0-4 scale um, that was previously being reported. Um, and um, generally we try to use um, grading schemes that would be used clinically in practice. So what were the most significant findings that came to light when you compared these serial endoscopies? Um, so based on the Z-test results, the upper respiratory tract disorders that were most variable were palatal instability, arytenoid asymmetry at rest, medial deviation of the areoplotic fold, vocal fold collapse, and pharyngeal lymphoid hyperplasia and epiclotic grade. Um, when we looked a, a bit closer at the magnitude of grade there using the Spearman's row, um, there was poor agreement between examinations for fatal instability, um, epiglottic grade, medial deviation of the areopsotic fold, um, pharyngeal lymphoid hyperplasia, and dorsal displacement of the soft palate. Um, so quite a lot of conditions were um, changing at reasonable magnitude. Um, and the direction of change in those disorders was highly variable, and particularly the palatal disorders that they could improve or um, deteriorate um, with roughly equal magnitude over that time. Um, it wasn't a clear direction of change for the majority of them. Um, and in fact, horses that showed um, displacement of the soft palate, um, only three of the 14 horses which showed displacement of the soft palate to exercise at some occasion displaced on every exam. And so arytenoid asymmetry exercise was the most consistent disorder. Um, with a very strong correlation of grades between examinations. And where it did change, it became more severe in grade between examinations. Um, pharyngeal lymphoid hyperplasia, though it wasn't quite statistically significant, um, did generally tend to improve as previously had been reported. Were there significant differences between the resting and exercise endoscopies when you looked at the serial exams? In... The resting endoscopy um, results are quite interesting. So the lattice plots revealed that horses with a resting laryngeal grade greater than 3.2 at the first exam um, remained moderately consistent in grade um, or deteriorated at the second exam, and that correlated fairly well with um, exercising grades of BLC. Um, so again, horses being affected by abnormal laryngeal function. Um, 
dorsal displacement of the soft palate was two or three times more likely to occur at rest than at exercise. Um, and in 50% of the cases where intermittent dorsal displacement of the soft palate was recorded at exercise, it had also occurred at rest. Um, but obviously in 50% of those cases, it hadn't been seen at rest. Um, and in 42% of the cases where dorsal displacement of the soft palate occurred on recovery, um, it had been recorded at rest. And at 60% of the cases where dorsal displacement of soft palate occurred on recovery, it was also seen on uh, exercise. Um, so again, there's still quite a lot of variability in the palatal disorders and that the occurrence of dorsal displacement of palate at one occasion didn't mean that you'd see it on another occasion um, for definite. Um, as far as the magnitude of changes um, between the general resting conditions and exercising conditions, we didn't really see a difference. So how could you see this influencing the way people are practicing or making decisions based on their overground endoscopy exams? I think always knowledge um, is helpful in how you make decisions. So knowing that there's a background variability should provide clinicians both a greater confidence to perform an additional overground endoscopic evaluation uh, where they don't see a condition for which they had a high index of suspicion on the initial exam. Um, and for horses undergoing surgical intervention, um, it's definitely important to improve surgical success rate by correctly identifying all the issues affecting performance prior to undertaking surgery. Um, and given that so many horses suffer from complex upper respiratory tract abnormalities, um, I think it's important to evaluate horses prior to surgery by overground endoscopy. Um, and also to accept that maybe um, you might require more than one overground endoscopy in some situations um, until we gain a greater understanding as to why that variability exists um, and whether there's any way of us controlling that. So do you have a take-home message for us? Yes, I think variability in overground endoscopy results should be considered when making a therapeutic decision based on a single overground endoscopy video, um, particularly managing client expectations. Um, and also that definitely further work is needed in this area, um, evaluating horses particularly twice over a very short time inter interval to determine intra-horse variability that may exist. Charlotte, thanks again for um, sharing this study with us. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening and please join us in two months for the next edition.